Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 76th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're bringing back the conversation from about a month ago and diving in deeper to get a better look at some of the comments and models filed by interveners in the carbon plan proceedings occurring down at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. This all comes in light of the expert witness hearings set to begin September 13th. So sit back because we've got a show for you today. Before we talk to our guests though, we have a few announcements to share. We're going to keep our updates short today as we've got a great episode that we don't wanna keep you from. So I'm gonna use this opportunity to plug NCSEA's upcoming Making Energy Work Conference taking place from October 25th through the 27th here in Raleigh. If you're someone interested in clean energy policy and regulation, then this conference is for you. We'll be covering topics like net metering, transmission, market structures, the carbon plan, building codes, and a whole host of other topics. It's also a great opportunity to meet and network with colleagues from across the industry. If you haven't already picked up your tickets, early bird registration expires August 30th. For more information, visit makingenergywork.com. Okay, on to the show. As you may remember, we spent some time back on episode 71 with a panel of experts digesting Duke Energy's proposed carbon plan, which was due by May 16th. As part of that episode, we spent quite a bit of time highlighting the plan's shortcomings, including the reliance on costly technologies like small modular nuclear reactors and hydrogen, while also sharing concerns that the plan advocated for building out new natural gas facilities. What we also covered in that episode was interveners had until the middle of July to file their own proposed carbon plan scenarios along with comments. And that's just what a number of groups did. So on today's episode, you're going to hear from three groups who all filed their own carbon plans or comments with the North Carolina Utilities Commission to help shape the proceedings moving forward on the path to finalizing a plan by December 31st of this year. So with that, let's talk to today's guest and hear more about what they had to say. Clean energy. Clean, clean, clean energy. Our first guest on today's episode is Adrian Martin Henderson with the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance. Adrian is the director of policy and market innovations, and her portfolio of work at SEBA is focused on formulating policies to advance the procurement of renewable energy in a viable and cost-effective manner through regional and congressional outreach as well as a portfolio of work via the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Adrian is working extensively on transmission matters, the macrogrid initiative, and market expansion in the South, Southeast, and Western markets. Prior to her tenure with SEBA, Adrian was a litigation attorney with the Washington, D.C. Office of the People's Council. Adrian also served as a staff attorney with the Louisiana Public Service Commission, where she handled utility cases regarding gas, electric, water, and telecommunications matters. Before making her transition to the niche market of regulated utilities, she was a civil litigator in private practice handling domestic and real estate property issues. Our next guest on the podcast 
is Tyler Norris, who serves as VP of Development at Cypress Creek Renewables, a leading U.S. solar and storage developer and longtime friend member of NCSEA. Tyler previously served as a power markets analyst at S&P Global and as a special advisor at the U.S. Department of Energy under President Obama. He's originally from Western North Carolina and currently lives in Durham. Last but certainly not least is David Neal, who's a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, where he works on environmental justice and energy policy. Prior to joining SELC, he had a career in criminal defense work. He is the co-founder and former executive director of the Fair Trial Initiative, a nonprofit dedicated to improving the quality of representation received by people facing the death penalty. Following work for FTI and a law firm, David was a sole practitioner focused on criminal appeals and capital post-conviction. David is a trustee and immediate past president of the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation and a board member of the Proteus Fund. He has previously served on the boards of the North Carolina Conservation Network, the Common Sense Foundation, and the Orange County ACLU. Friends of the pod, please welcome all of our guests to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining today. Thanks so much for pulling this together, Matt. Well, thanks, Matt, for having me. Uh, It's great to be back again, Matt. All right. So to start off, Tyler, you're here representing the Clean Power Suppliers Association via your organization, Cypress Creek Renewables. So to quickly start, who is CPSA and why did your organization decide to intervene in the carbon plan proceedings? So CPSA is a nonprofit trade association where I serve as a board director. Our members are primarily developers of independent solar and storage with significant operations in the Carolinas and broader southeast. Our mission is to support the energy transition with development of independent renewable resources across the region. And really our primary activity right now is is focused on implementation of North Carolina's bipartisan carbon reduction mandate, um, given its significance, not only for the trajectory of the Carolinas, but but for the broader region and and as a matter of precedent for, for other states and regions. As you, you alluded to, CPSEA has been involved in the carbon plan proceedings in, in which you commissioned Brattle Group to conduct an analysis of Duke's proposed plans while also putting forth uh, their own modeling. So can you talk about some of the shortcomings uh, Brattle Group identified with Duke's proposed plans as part of these carbon plan proceedings? Well, it's no secret there are a lot of issues with Duke's proposed carbon plan. Um, I think some of those issues have, have been discussed on a prior episode. And and, uh, you know, this is a resource plan that goes all the way to 2050. And so it contains, you know, hundreds of different inputs and assumptions. And, you know, even if you're closely involved in the proceeding, it's hard to keep track of all the issues and it's easy to get lost in the weeds pretty quickly. Um, so what I want to do for your listeners here, Matt, is highlight one issue in particular that carries really significant implications for the resource plan. And so one of the centerpieces of Duke's carbon plan is their proposal to impose a hard cap on the interconnection of utility scale solar and solar plus storage resources. The reason it's so significant is that solar and solar plus storage are the most affordable and readily available zero carbon resources that we have to accelerate decarbonization of electricity and achieve our carbon objectives here. And so the practical implications of this cap, which we'll get into in more detail, is that, you know, it effectively delays our ability to achieve our our interim carbon target by 2030. It increases the execution risk of achieving that carbon target. And then it also substantially increases the costs 
of achieving the interim carbon target. And Brattle's analysis really attempts to quantify what that what that cost is, which we can get into. And the first thing to say up front is that you know, Duke has they've not attempted to present a technical analysis to justify the figures they're proposing for the cap. You know, they explicitly state that their figures are based on internal engineering judgment, um, and they don't offer any meaningful quantitative or or qualitative analysis to justify it, despite having years to do so since initially proposing one in the 2020 um, integrated resource plan proceeding. And it's I think it's also important to note here that the justification for this cap, you know, is not related to reliability or resource adequacy modeling, whether it's Duke's or Synapse or Brattle's, relies on solar for capacity for the system. It's nearly 100% energy only. With that sort of context, just to, to walk through the numbers, um, the cap that Duke is proposing is their, is their default cap, um, would limit utility scale solar additions to the system at 750 megawatts in 2026, uh, increasing incrementally to 1,050 megawatts in 2027. This is approximately the same amount of solar that Duke reports having interconnected in 2015 and 2017. So in other words, uh, they're assuming it will be, uh, you know, approximately 10 years without making any improvements <laughs> to their ability to, to interconnect um, these resources to their system. After 2027, they propose capping um, at 1,350 megawatts a year uh, beginning 2028 and continuing in perpetuity through 2050. Now, just to offer a little bit of comparison to contextualize those numbers, uh, you know, just last year in 2021, several other states uh, are already interconnecting substantially more utility scale solar. Virginia interconnected 900 megawatts last year. Georgia or other neighboring states, you know, did 760 approximately. Nevada, you know, which has about a quarter of the electric load of North Carolina, um, interconnected uh, just over 600 megawatts. And, you know, let alone Texas at uh, nearly four gigawatts interconnected in 2021 alone. California, 1,330. Florida at about 1,100. Um, so many other states and regions and utilities are are doing you know, substantially more and planning on much larger resource additions in the in the years ahead. And so the, where the Brattle analysis comes in is one, you know, they assess Duke's justifications for the cap and and determine that there, there really is not um, sufficient justification for selecting those specific numbers. And two, they perform a cost analysis to compare uh, Duke's solar cap to an unconstrained scenario. And what they find is that Duke solar cap will increase the cost of ratepayers uh, for a total of, of approximately $900 million in 2030 alone, uh, $800 million in 2032, for an aggregate of billions of dollars in additional costs being imposed on ratepayers. Uh, just through 2035, let alone beyond 2035. So this is, you know, very material for for our, our customer allies, and um, you know, we'll of course hear from from Adrian from that side. Um, but in a sense, there is no single assumption, perhaps, in Duke's proposed carbon plan that more substantially shapes the trajectory of their resource plan than this particular cap. And again, because this. This is the most readily available and, and cost-effective resource that 
that we have available. And I'll just add one more um, thing, and then um, we, we can move on. And just to, just to put this in a national perspective, because um, you know you can sort of get into the weeds on North Carolina and the Duke system. Um, but just to take a step back as to why this is important for the country at large. Um, so when we look at the current analysis of what could be achieved for U.S. greenhouse gas emissions reductions through 2030 under the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the numbers show we could achieve approximately a 40% reduction. When you dig into what's the resource plan to get us there, what the best analysis says is that we're going to have to add about uh, it's nearly 500 gigawatts uh, but in four years alone of, of solar. That's between 20, uh, 2029 and 2032. And that at minimum, that would require every state in the country, if every state was installing the same volume, to add 2.3 gigawatts a year of solar. Uh, and of course, we know that not every state can add that much. So what it's going to require is the states with the most solar resource and the most potential to add uh, potentially anywhere up to four or even five gigawatts a year to achieve that that potential and achieve that greenhouse gas target. So that's why we think this, this is significant, not just for North Carolina, for Duke, but really as a matter of very significant precedent for, for the country at large. And I think it's important that you contextualize North Carolina's solar deployment uh, compared to other states within the region, right? And we're seeing that reflected on the national leaderboard in terms of solar deployed. North Carolina was at one point number two. We've now dropped down to number four. You know, after House Bill 589 back in 2017, we saw a lot of solar development here in the state transition into the CPRE program and GSA programs with Duke, uh, you know, offering very little opportunities for uh, large commercial customers and others to purchase uh, large amounts of clean power. And that's, I think, we'll segue right into um, my next question, which is for Adrian. So you're with the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance, representing some of the largest purchasers of clean energy and electricity in general. Uh, so can you walk us through some of the concerns raised by your members that were central to some of the most recent filings that, that you guys made at the North Carolina Utilities Commission? So to give a little contextual uh, background to who SEBA is and who we represent. So SEBA is a business association. We represent a diverse membership of more than 314 members, primarily made up of the largest buyers of renewable energy across the United States, right? And so that business operations that we have in North Carolina and Southeast region are asking for renewable energy to be at their fingertips in terms of SEBA's overall aspiration as a group is to achieve 90% carbon-free U.S. electricity by 2030. And many of our uh, members have decided that for themselves, that 100% carbon neutrality goal is 2025. So in doing that and doing so, they look at regions where there are opportunity. Unfortunately, in North Carolina, there hasn't been a lot of opportunity. And so we looked at the carbon plan as an opportunity for us to step forth and say, how can we band together with NCUC and others there, including Duke, to have more customer programs? And what we mean by that is we looked at Florida Power and Light Company. They serve approximately 12 million customers, and they plan to reach 100% carbon-free system by 2045. In part, they are increasing their solar generation from 4 gigawatts to 90 gigawatts and battery storage from 500 megawatts to 50 gigawatts. And that's substantial. That's a step forward. That's a partnership. Um, and it's showing that they want to create opportunities for our customers to come in, provide economic investment, but also pare down the cost for all customers, including residentials. And I think that's really important 
in terms of ensuring that when we have a conversation about the customer base that I primarily represent, which are CNI customers, that we want customers' rates to go down across the board, not just in our own backyard. And so what does that mean? That means having access to meaningful customer-based programs to procure renewable energy in North Carolina. And we're willing to enter that partnership to find those solutions. In our petition, we looked at the grid, edge, and customer programs, and those are supposed to be designed to reduce energy usage by customers. However, Duke's proposal did not propose or include any of that modeling. And so we also looked at the GSA program that has been capped for several years at 600 megawatts. And so those were opportunities for Duke to come forward and say, customers specifically, you know, how can we help you to meet the needs that you're wanting? How can we help you meet your electricity demand? And so, you know, those that was a very successful program. It's been capped for a long time. We've been begging and banging on the doors and we just haven't been able to get those. So in our comments, we raised those because as Tyler said, there are opportunities that were just missed, unfortunately. I'm hopeful that during the next few months, during the public hearings where people will come out and speak publicly about things that are missing, that we can reach some compromise on things that are missing. But particularly for my membership, the customer programs were extremely lacking and the modeling was not supportive of what we saw. So um, we want to just allow for large utility customers to really be able to supply or match their electricity use with renewable energy production. And it just wasn't found in this, unfortunately, for us. So in North Carolina alone, we have 86 companies that have already set goals to purchase 100% of their electricity from renewable sources. So you, you talked about the, the GSA program, which is essentially capped for large commercial customers already and met that cap. And so are there any other programs and are there structures that are currently in place enough for these companies to meet those goals? Well, we'll always want more, but that's a start. I think opening that back up and expanding that cap significantly would be super helpful. Also, having access is going to be super important, unlocking the market for our customers um, in meaningful ways. And so, you know, the opportunities there are limitless because I do believe that the investment and opportunity that are built, brought in by my customer base is extremely powerful, not only just for North Carolinians, but for all. Um, we're all trying to decarbonize in a way that's going to be cost efficient, right? And so that provides jobs, sustainable jobs, but it also provides a rate base to that particular area. And so North Carolina has the opportunity to have investment that is not seen before by opening this door and unlocking markets in that way. Like you raised, there's 86 companies that have set these goals. So what can we do to not only attract and keep those companies in North Carolina, but also help them meet a goal? This goal is good for everyone. There are societal benefits um, associated with decarbonizing, but there's also economic benefit. And so these things go hand in hand. And so a program like GSA is a starting block, and we're willing to sit down and discuss how we can unlock even more um, market participation by my customer base and also residentials who want or are demanding renewable energy. And, and you alluded to it, moving in that path towards decarbonization is also the most economic for for ratepayers and commercial ratepayers and and you know tying back to what Tyler had mentioned earlier right in in their Brattle Group uh, Commission study it showed that you know removing that cap on on solar can save ratepayers billions of dollars and so speaking of proposed modeling that actually helps to save ratepayers money I want to go to David with the Southern Environmental Law Center to talk about the modeling that. Your organization, along with ours at NCSEA, NRDC, Sierra Club, and 
the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, commissioned via Synapse to generate your own carbon plan modeling, recently filed at the Utilities Commission. So can you tell us how this modeling that, that you recently filed compares to Duke's modeling that was filed back in May? Sure, Matt. Thanks for the for the question. I think the one of the key differences is you know, Duke's Encompass modeling wasn't reproducible. The inputs that they provided uh, didn't generate the outputs that were in their report. And there are a number of reasons for that, but it's it, it just called into question the reliability of of what you know Duke put forward to the commission. You know, Tyler alluded to some of the things that Duke did to artificially manipulate the Encompass model. Synapse kind of pointed some of these out in, a, in their report where they kind of hardwired in with coal retirement dates. They didn't allow Encompass to, to find the most economically optimal dates for coal plant retirements. And they artificially replaced battery storage with gas combustion turbines. And so that some of these resource adequacy and liability decisions that Duke made aren't justified and um, were a big reason why I think solar and storage were artificially limited by Duke. So our synapses, you know, modeling using the same Encompass software that, that Duke used without trying to put its thumb on the scales, but just economically find the most you know, optimal route for achieving the goals of House Bill 951, you know, resulted in a carbon plan that would save North Carolinians a lot of money. In the short term, an optimized portfolio, you know, would save a couple billion dollars, but over the long term, it's it approaches, you know, $18 billion. So real money by when you're looking at the long-term implications of Duke's proposal, which just it's just unfortunate that they rely so much on uh, small modular nuclear reactors and new gas-fired power plants and a kind of a speculative hydrogen economy that doesn't exist yet. When we know that solar storage, energy efficiency, and wind are available technologies that are proven in the marketplace and can be deployed in ways that will save North Carolinians money. They also went further and looked at a regional resources scenario, allowing the importation of very inexpensive wind power from the Midwest through PGM. And the, the modeling there showed even more significant savings for North Carolinians. By 2050, under net present value, the revenue requirement to Duke would be reduced by about $23 billion. So again, relying more on energy efficiency, so you reduce the amount of electricity Duke's needing to generate, and relying more on proven solar and battery storage is going to make a huge difference for North Carolinians, both for some of the economic development reasons that Adrian and Tyler alluded to, but also just for our pocketbooks. More consumers are already being hit with higher prices because of the spike in, in natural gas prices. Before the carbon plan process is even complete, Duke Energy Progress is coming forward with a rate case. So it, it is going to be important to find the economically optimal path forward for decarbonization. And Encompass is a powerful tool for doing that. And it's unfortunate that Duke manipulated the model in ways that it did. So Tyler, going back to the, the Brattle Group study, earlier we highlighted the shortcomings of, of Duke's proposed scenarios. But let's talk a little bit more about what Brattle proposed. Can you share some of those details with us and what they'd mean for renewable deployment in the state? Yeah, sure thing. So Brattle used their electricity simulation software called GridSim to run 
two different sets of scenarios. One was to achieve compliance with the uh, interim carbon emissions reduction mandate by 2030. So that's the 70% below 2005. Uh, and they actually they ran three different scenarios for 2030 compliance. One was with you know Duke's default low solar cap. One was an unconstrained scenario um, that didn't impose any particular cap on on solar. And then another in which Duke's high end potential solar cap of 1,800 megawatts a year what was imposed. And then they also ran a couple scenarios looking at 2032 if the commission ultimately determines that. An extension by by two years is in the ratepayer interest, but the primary focus being on on 2030 compliance and and what they find, as we've alluded, is that the the model selects substantially more more solar if this if this cap is is not imposed. And so, just to give you a a sense of volume and and Duke scenario, you know, with a low solar cap, they they only allow an additional 5,200 megawatts to come online by by 2030. And Brattle's uncapped scenario, the, the, the model selects 9,500 megawatts, so almost doubling the volume. If the medium sort of solar cap of 1,800 megawatts a year is put in place, the model selects 7,500 through, uh, through 2030. The other thing that's interesting to note about the model results is, of course, it, it does select a um, substantial amount of battery storage, as David was alluding. And what the, the model actually finds is that it wants to pair as as much of that storage with the solar as possible because it actually identifies significant cost efficiencies in doing so because you end up saving on interconnection the cost of interconnection facilities and upgrades and you also save on development costs so so even if you know we do get this standalone storage itc in place the model finds that there are meaningful cost efficiencies to pairing that that storage with the with the solar. So we think there's really exciting growth opportunity there for the state. You know, when it comes to, to onshore wind, the model it, it will select effectively as much onshore wind as it's allowed to. Um, we know from our wind industry colleagues that they they expect there to be some meaningful constraints from a siting and permitting standpoint, as has been the case throughout most of the Southeast to date for uh, for onshore wind. So it ultimately depends on what amount you think is achievable. When it comes to, to offshore wind, the model um, will only select it for the interim carbon target to the extent that solar and onshore wind are capped. But we see a lot of opportunity uh, for offshore wind um, going into the 2030s toward that that net zero 2050 target. You know, small modular reactors, the the model didn't select them. Uh, Brattle did not view it as reasonable to uh, allow the model to select SMRs simply because um, it's extremely uncertain as to whether those will be commercially available by the early 2030s. And you know, one other thing it may just be worth noting is you know, Brattle's assessment was that Duke's modeling does likely understate the deployment of electric vehicles pretty substantially. Um, even compared to conservative estimates from other uh, very credible market intelligence firms like Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So it, it's likely that we're going to see a little bit of an uptick on that side. But I think, you know, overall, the in terms of the renewables and the storage additions, the the resource scenarios that, that Brattle put forward are, are very consistent with those that are um, environmental friends and the clean interveners and, and the tech customers put forward. So that's a little bit of a summary for you. One of the long 
known challenges here in the state for additional renewable deployment, especially in the eastern part of the state, as many of our listeners know, has been transmission constraints. Do uh, either your plan or, or David, do, does your plan address this challenge? And is this a consideration being made in carbon plan proceedings moving forward? So I'll start with David on this question. Yes. In addition to the uh, Synapse report in partnership with uh, Sustainable Energy Association, we put forward recommendations from Jay Kaspari on, on transmission planning. And, you know, definitely think that transmission improvements are going to be integral to uh, carbon plan goals. You know, we certainly support some of the red zone improvements that that Duke has identified that are going to be essential to integrating more solar. Jake Aspari put forward some recommendations around multi-value transmission planning that typically transmission assets have been undervalued by Duke and it's it's going to be important to right-size some of those investments so that they have the capacity to integrate even more renewables um, over time, needing to really leverage the results of the existing collaborative planning processes for regional transmission and take advantage of, of advanced transmission technologies, that there's advanced conductors that can make a really big difference in how much solar we can integrate into the system and be thoughtful about what kinds of transmission investments could allow more sharing between the two Duke utilities uh, also can go a long way to cost effectively integrating renewables. And Tyler, I think you have a unique perspective on this as well as a developer and EPC in this space running into uh, lots of challenges on the, the transmission side from interconnection queues to uh, the cost of, of transmission upgrades. Uh, so were there any sort of considerations paid to transmission uh, in the Brattle Group study? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, Brattle's doing incredible work all over the country right now on proactive transmission planning initiatives. And so their report outlines a lot of different uh, methodologies and case studies of, of more effective proactive transmission planning. And they, they highly recommend that the, a more proactive approach be taken here in the Carolinas that can capture all host of benefits, some of which David alluded to, but those are those are outlined. That you know the the basic uh, issue for those less familiar is that to date, you know we've had we've essentially only pursued significant upgrades of the transmission system in a reactive fashion. So only when a single generator comes along, they perform a study, and then the entire cost of that upgrade will get assigned to that single generator. And what has happened consistently is that we don't get upgrades done as a result, and it ends up actually costing ratepayers more over the long term. And so what many, many states and jurisdictions now are increasingly realizing is that they can they can better achieve their resource plans, their emissions targets, and do so more cost effectively by taking a proactive approach. The first and you know the clearest example of this in the Carolinas that David alluded to are these red zone upgrades. They've been repeatedly identified for years now in multiple interconnection studies. They're heavily concentrated in the, the southern portion of Duke, um, Duke Energy Progress Territory. There's also a substantial portion of them in Duke Energy Carolinas. And so I think there's there's overwhelming evidence and support to, to pursue those. And we're hopeful that the, the commission will weigh that evidence and, um, and allow those to proceed because uh, a very substantial portion of the, the most cost-effective solar resource that we do have in the Carolinas are concentrated 
in those zones. But this is a this is a really significant area for further optimization for for North Carolina and the rest of the southeast more broadly is to figure out how can we have an efficient and effective proactive transmission planning system. And so I think there's going to be a lot of work to do over the next year to to figure out how we how we optimize that. And to go back to Adrian on the the topic of of customer facing programs. So one part of the the comments that SEBA filed with the North Carolina Utilities Commission was the the risk of businesses making decisions to locate in other states of the region where utilities are offering more progressive clean energy programs or where the utilities themselves are advancing quicker to a carbon-free grid. I know earlier you mentioned Florida Power and Light and how they are quickly advancing towards those carbon reduction goals, but are there other examples of utility programs that are successfully enabling large customers to meet their clean energy-related goals? Yeah, there are. I mean, of course, most of them are probably uh, siloed up in the Northeast, but um, Florida was one that I wanted to point out in the South. But definitely in D.C. and Maryland, they have very progressive goals in terms of their sustainability goals and how they want to meet them. But they've also provided a lot of great programs for customers. And I will say that, you know, out of our membership of 300 plus members, you know, they represent seven trillion dollars in revenue and 60 million employees. So they are trying to not only make sure that as they cut costs through procuring renewable energy and help their decarbonization, they're also smart. They they have done this before. They understand the, the benefits of, of economic investment in those places and states where they go. And so 89 Fortune 500 companies are part of our membership. Um, and those Fortune 500 members understand that when they go into states, they're not only bringing value, but they're bringing investment dollars. And so just to go back to the transmission conversation, because I think that's super important, because I think that is part and parcel of part of the carbon plan and really ensuring that renewables are available, not only for CNI customers, but residentials, is that Tyler raised a very good point. We need to have proactive planning, but what does that really look like on the ground, right? And so on the ground, that creates there, there are studies that have shown that for every one billion dollars of investment in transmission infrastructure, there's two to three billion dollars of in benefits that trickle down to customers. And, and those figures go on and on and on. Seven thousand construction jobs, you know, about fifteen hundred jobs that stay after the transmission is actually in the ground. That is a lot. You know, we're going through Inflation Reduction Act right now. We're, we're parsing apart different things that are going to be of value, and there's going to be money there to unlock markets. So how do we? pair all of these available resources to ensure that not only renewables, but the technologies that we're asking um, to be added into this carbon plan as NCUC looks at it, is going to be properly utilized. Optimization of the renewables that are there in North Carolina, the solar generation that's there, the technologies that have already been proven, um, putting guardrails. We are not, SEBA is not opposed to offshore wind we just want to make sure that there's guardrails and protections for ratepayers so that customers can enjoy all the benefits that will flow from those particular programs. And we're also willing to sit at the table and put programs in place and do the structures and things that need to be put in place. So we're not only protecting ratepayers, but also ensuring that those programs are going to be optimized to the best that they can be. And also that there's an avenue to participate. Because I think in the past, customers have not had a seat at the table. And it's super important that all stakeholders do. You know, another large concern here at play with with all these filings uh, at the commission is ownership of generation infrastructure, which explains in part some of the differences you see with the technologies proposed by various parties, including Duke, 
So as an example, with Duke scenarios, you see quite a bit of new proposed natural gas generation, small modular nuclear reactors, and even hydrogen. Uh, the question to the group here is, what is the right balance to strike between utility ownership and third-party ownership to ensure the lowest cost for ratepayers? So great question, Matt. And we see this come up in a lot of states and jurisdictions. And generally what, what we found, and you know, Brattle's analysis has also underscored this, is that independent power production via power purchase agreements or PPAs um, generally remains the, the best option for, for the majority of jurisdictions to contract new generation. And that's irrespective of tax treatment um, or even cost of capital. And the most simple reason is that uh, when you have power purchase agreements, the independent power producer shoulders 100% of the risks associated with development, with financing, with construction, with operations and performance, instead of putting those risks on the ratepayers. So that's from a, from a risk perspective. From a cost perspective, we also generally see that PPAs are uh, more affordable for ratepayers than utility self-build or even utility build on transfer. And again, that's irrespective of tax treatment or capital costs. And that's also for another simple reason is that, and that is that independent power producers are able to put a lot of downward pressure on upfront PPA prices because they have opportunities to pursue other revenue opportunities once those PPAs expire. And generally, independent power producers forecast um, energy and capacity prices rising over time into the future. So the, the general takeaway is that, you know, lower cost, lower risk to the extent that we can take advantage of, of independent power production. With that said, of course, you know, there are certain requirements that are set out for ownership share in North Carolina law currently as relevant to this carbon plan. But I think we're, we're hopeful that we can make progress on that over time. I think that all great points that Tyler's made. It's unfortunate in some ways that the performance-based regulation reforms that were also in House Bill 951 retained that cost of service, the cost of service rate making principle as a cornerstone of how rates are set in North Carolina because it, it, it kind of keeps the utility having this vested interest in building new plant building new infrastructure and um you know that i think it's going to be important for the commission to be attuned to that and to be thinking about um rate pairs as they come up with the their their ultimate carbon plan and at the same time i think the something else that adrian mentioned it's important to highlight assuming the inflation reduction act passes uh, is, is signed into law it's going to be important for the commission to take that into consideration too, because some there's so much risk to ratepayers from leaving that money on the table that would otherwise go to bringing down the costs of the clean renewables that 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 are really going to be facilitated by that law. So those are all great points, and I will just add this: I agree with everything that everyone just said. But you know, in 2021, our particular customers, our members rather, were voluntary energy customers who contracted 11.6 gigawatts. Um, 11.06 gigawatts of clean energy. And that's the equivalent of 40% of all new carbon-free capacity installed that year. The infrastructure needs to be put in place. The transmission planning needs to be proactive and not reactive. 
we don't need a storm to hit North Carolina to figure out that renewables are not intermittent renewable resources. They are resources that can be used to provide reliability and drive costs down. And they have to stop being looked at as an intermittent resource. They aren't. They can provide the reliability and the redundancies that we need on the system and make the grid greener. And so I say all that to say that let's open up the marketplace. Let's make it more competitive. And I, and I do think it's there. I just think that we have to push a little bit more and stay on this bandwagon to ensure that NCUC doesn't leave money on the table and that they really make Duke see the benefits that are really there, that there are other partnerships, there are other players that want to come into the space and be a part of solving the problem and find solutions for all ratepayers. And I just can't say that enough. There are meaningful and scalable carbon-free solutions on the table that are going to drive costs down. And I think a perfect example of how renewables are, are a reliable resource are what you see with a lot of tech customers right now as an example, right? Look at Look at a lot of data centers who have, you know, a significant level of requirements for redundancy. And we've seen in places like Apple data centers, right, where they install solar and storage on site as a means to keeping the power on if there were to be any sort of power failure on the grid. So I think that's a perfect example right there that that, that renewables is the answer to to that resiliency equation. So for, for everybody here, where do we go next? What major considerations should be made to ensure we're reaching the state's carbon reduction mandates on time, but in a way that's equitable and lowest costs to ratepayers. I, I just think that we have to look at more than just the utility to solve the problems that exist in our states. I think that they've done a great job making sure the lights are on, but we have to evolve the business model. And evolving the business model means having more players at the table to make conscious decisions on what is best for all ratepayers. And so we're willing to sit at that table. We're willing to find a way to find a scalable solutions because at this point, we're all trying to reach goals. And I would just reiterate that it's going to be really important to invest in energy efficiency. It's going to be that's something that that can have direct bill benefits for customers. And as we target those to to really help low income customers, that's going to help with some of the energy burdens that our lowest income neighbors face at the same time that it that's going to help us achieve our carbon reduction goals. So we've really got to just, I think, put a lot of emphasis on shrinking the problem in terms of how much electric generation we need. At the same time, we know that there's load growth coming from EVs and, and beneficial electrification. So being really smart about integrating those customer-sided programs, both for the larger uh, commercial customers as well as for residential customers, so that they have a way to participate with rooftop solar and demand response technologies that help to shrink those peaks. And at the same time, we need to be really thoughtful about relying on proven technology and not putting all of our eggs or so many of our eggs in the basket of, of unproven speculative technologies. And that, again, I think it's a real shortcoming of what Duke put forward so far. Yeah, well, the good news is that, you know, we don't have to decide the resource plan all the way through 2050 right now. And I think most of the interveners and the utility are, are aligned that um, it's prudent to pursue a near-term execution plan um, that keeps options open, right? That invests in new tools that we can utilize uh, longer term to achieve our our carbon emissions targets, but that also ensure that we that we are keeping the possibility open that we can meet our carbon or interim carbon target by by 2030, and that we're not being too selectively conservative and not utilizing 
the most readily available resources at our disposal to achieve those. And so making sure that you know we're not being overly conservative on those annual rate of, of um, installations, being very rigorous in the way we, we assess what is a reasonable cap to impose on those resources, and, and realizing that you know, this challenge of how can we achieve a higher and higher annual rates of installation for these zero carbon resources, this is one of the most important challenges that this country faces in the next decade. If we are going to achieve these ambitious carbon emission reduction targets and harness all of these benefits for, for ratepayers, this 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 challenge of steadily growing the rate at which we can add these resources to the system is going to be absolutely critical. And so, um, we're very hopeful that this commission will you know seize this opportunity to to be ambitious, to leave no stone unturned, and to figure out a way that you know we can we can ensure that we're meeting these emissions targets at least cost. I want to thank each of the three of you for for joining on today's episode of the podcast. I know. It's been a busy, busy summer in getting all of these comments and, and modeling filed with the commission and our work's not done yet. And we've got an expert witness hearing scheduled for September 13th, and there's still uh, a lot more work to go as part of the proceedings leading up to a final plan at the end of this year. So your work is critical in ensuring we, we have a, a plan on the books that reaches those 70% carbon reduction goal by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050 while being uh, least cost to rate payers. So again, I just wanted to thank all three of you for joining us today on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Thanks. It was great to be here. My key takeaway from today's episode is how cost-effective renewables truly are when it comes to planning out the generation mix for the utility. We saw with both the Brattle study and the Synapse plan that additional deployment of clean energy actually led to significant savings for ratepayers across the board. Part of that can be attributed to the fact that solar is one of the cheapest forms of energy and that solar, storage, and wind provide price, predictability, and stability in a market that has proven itself to be anything but with COVID-19 supply chain issues and geopolitics in Eastern Europe. Furthermore, our guests all spent time highlighting the importance of continued investment in proactive transmission policy to ensure we're adequately prepared to meet the 70% emissions reduction goal by 2030. With these plans and the comments filed by SEBA, it'll be interesting to see how the Commission weighs this information against Duke's proposed plan a few months back especially given that these plans provide billions of dollars in cost savings for ratepayers. Stay tuned as we'll be following the proceedings closely and we'll provide updates as soon as we get more information. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 76 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.